right. So, like I said, my formal training is in youth apologetics. Uh, And that's a fancy way of saying my heart is that when a student walks across the graduation stage, they walk across ready. And it literally is something that happens inside of me. I, 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 get, to, I get to sit in the funny uh, um, you know, graduation robes with little hoods and, and, and walk down the aisle and look all dignified with the music playing. It's sort of fun to do it every year. And I get to sit and watch student after student. And years ago, I was the one that actually read verses as the students walked across the stage. And I remember many of them, you'd walk, you'd see them coming across and you're really thrilled for them and they're happy and they've got all these medals on. Maybe it was, you know, they're really smart kids. That wasn't me. And, you know, and you're just like, man, you, you, you did it. You've done everything that you've wanted to do. But there's something inside of you, something that's sort of breaking. Because you're watching that kid, that really smart kid, Maybe the star of the youth group, the kid that maybe even was on my leadership team. And you can't help but think to yourself, do they have any idea what's going to hit them? Do they have any idea about what is actually waiting for them on the other side of that stage? And it scares the living daylights out of me. To the point where, because I mean, not every kid is going to, in a school of, of six or seven hundred, not every kid is going to have the opportunity to take the class that I think is the best class and the class that they ought to take. That's not how it works, right? The kid, the, you know, not every kid is the outgoing kid that you know, wants to know and asks all the right questions. That's not every kid. Sometimes it's the really smart kid that's just really quiet, and then all of a sudden you hear a story of them going, I, I lost my faith. I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know if I believe anymore. And it's, it's pretty scary stuff. So the question we, I want to ask us is, who's waiting? Like, do we even know who's on the other side? I think we kind of do. I'm going to sort of paint you a pretty ugly picture in a minute here about what is actually waiting. But do we know? And if we do know, once we figure that out, are our kids ready to meet them? I think rightfully so. We have our kids in a bit of a Christian bubble, right? That's okay. I like the bubble. I like sheltering them, you know, especially in the Christian school world because Christian schools shelter people. Yes, gladly. I want to shelter them. I think that's the best possible option for a time, right? That sheltering ought to do something, okay? Now, it's not for everybody. Not everybody can afford it, obviously. But even in a youth group, there's a moment where, yeah, I love the kid that wants to be at church and wants to be at youth group and wants to be engaged in that world all the time. Why? Because there's preparation that's happening during those moments, right? We're not sheltering them to keep them away from everything. We're sheltering them for a reason. That's what we're going to talk about today, a little bit today. So who are they going to encounter? What sort of challenges might they face? And are they ready to face those challenges? Interestingly enough, well, here's some of the options of what they're actually getting ready to face. Is this is a uh, professor of, philo- uh, of bioethics at Princeton, um, Peter Singer. And if this doesn't appall you, um, have some more coffee because it means you're not quite awake. Newborns should not be considered human until 30 days after birth. Right, tell my wife that. That's not going to go well. 
and that handicapped babies can be justifiably killed after birth. I remember our, my first, when my first daughter was, uh, my, my, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, um, we have a, a friend that's an atheist, and um, he asked her if she was going to get that test where they like put the huge needle, you know, to see if the baby's got downs. I don't know, what, I don't know what it's called off the top of my head. And she's like, no, no, I don't care. And he legitimately looked at her and said, why wouldn't you want to know? Because a baby that is born like that is no better than an animal that needs to be taken out back and shot. I'm like, this is like a brand new mom. And she's just looking, I'm like, and I'm just like, okay, if you weren't old, I might actually hit you. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, and you, so you kind of give the old person excuse, like you're like, you know, you're in your 70s or 80s, and okay, I'll, I'll give you the excuse, and we'll just smile and go, no, it's okay, thank you, and you move on, right? But this kind of thing is being taught at the university level, okay? Then you've got something like Daniel Dennett that I just passed by real fast. Let's try that again. There we go. They will see me as just another liberal professor trying to cajole them out of some of their convictions, and they're dead right about that. That's what I am, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Now, we're not talking about, you know, if you've seen God's Not Dead, we're not talking about that sort of thing where some kid's going to get up and be like, challenge my professor. And I tell kids all the time, it's very likely that the person you're going to interact with at this level has nothing to do with the professor. It might be the 3 a.m. dorm room conversation, but it's these guys that are influencing that conversation. Okay, most of our students are not going to get up and be like, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to say... You know, that's, and, and most professors aren't going to say, if you don't say God's not dead, you fail. I mean, that's probably not going to happen. Okay, I think it has maybe once or twice, but it's probably not going to happen. But what will happen, right? What will happen is that people will try to influence our kids and make this sort of world of Christians, we'll put the world of Christianity over here, make us look stupid, make us look dumb, make us look unimportant, uninfluential, and non-academic. And over here are the real people that are all academic and we've got it all figured out and we have the science and we have the right way of viewing morality and we have the right tools and all of you people over here are delusional. And my job as a college professor is to get you from the delusional world into reality. Get out of this Christian delusion that you have and get into reality. That's what college professors, by and large, are trying to do. Here are some of the numbers. One out of four college professors are professing atheists or agnostic. Not surprised. It's probably more than that. Only 6% of college professors consider the Bible to be the Word of God. 51% consider the Bible to be an ancient book of stories and fables. These are intellectuals. And 75% believe religion does not belong in the public schools. Let that soak in for a second. But the reality isn't just on a college campus. The reality is shifting now to the high school campus. And many of our students are stuck in a world, and we all know the world that we're living in, is far different than the world that we grew up in. I if you asked me when I was in high school if these things were going to be an issue, 
I never would have thought of it. The biggest, the biggest fear I had in high school, the biggest thing I had to deal with was walking across a quarter mile covered walkway from one part of the campus to the other part of the campus and not getting beat up. That was pretty much it. And as long as I had my varsity football jacket on, I was good, right? But we had like kids literally getting duct taped to poles and my sophomore year, a kid got to be able to two by four. I mean, that was like our thing, but we didn't worry about drugs, you know, no one thought to bring alcohol to school. If they're going to do alcohol, it was a much later, right? No one thought about bathrooms, right? I mean, California's paving the way, right? In 2013, before I even got here, Jerry Brown signed the first law in, in, ensuring transgender youth in California to use bathrooms and participate in sports teams for the, with the gender they identify with. Massachusetts now has basically said that biological sex means nothing, and this is the world our students are stepping into, or are, or are already in. Education is thus, this is uh, Charles Potter, and I think he gets this dead on. Education is thus the most powerful ally of humanism, and every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools meeting for one, an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? I think he's right. If all we did was that one hour a week and a small fraction of our students, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to lose. And I think in some part we are. I think it's a terrible, terrible reality, a reality I would rather not face and rather say, you know, we're fine. I don't think that's the case. You've got a bunch of people on one side of the coin saying, you don't need to believe any of those things. And here's why. But there's something happening, right? You've got people like Richard Dawkins that are saying, when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from delusion, it's called religion. I love Richard. He makes me laugh. You can always count on our friendly... Mr. Dawkins, to give us some much-needed humor. So are your students ready? I want you to think of your students for a minute. I want you to get your students in your head, maybe a couple of them in particular, and I want you to give yourself that legitimate question in the back of your mind, or maybe in the front of your mind now, of are they ready? Picture that stage. Many of them just did it, right? They just walked across that stage, all proud and of their accomplishment. You know, even if they just skated by, because some of them do, you know, this is the greatest thing about uh, uh, teaching. I literally, this year, f- first year, I walked into the church where we do graduation, and the principal looks at me, and he goes, she's going to walk. She made it. We had one student all the way up until the day of graduation. We were not sure if she was going to walk or not. I'm like, can you imagine? I mean, as I'm wa- watching her walk up, like, are you, are you here? Are you actually going to? Like, what if we have to tell you you can't? That's terrible, right? So as they walk across this graduation stage, are they ready? are they ready to get A's in college? I don't know. I mean, when we stand at the throne and say hi to Jesus, I don't think he's going to ask us our GPA. I don't think he cares. I really don't. But, did, but when we stand and he asks us, can we legitimately say we did everything we could to make sure that they're ready? I think the answer right now is a resounding no. And this study called Soul Searching by Christian Smith, um, 
is a part and parcel uh, of some of the findings that, that, that this guy's found. I think it shows us that our kids are not ready. And that's okay, because I've got a plan to get them ready. But I'm going to say our kids are not ready. Maybe some of yours are. If they are, that's awesome. But by and large, our kids are not ready. Most U.S. teens are incredibly inarticulate about their faith. Right? They don't know. They don't understand the basics of theology. They don't understand. I mean, I've had students look at me and go, I don't even need to understand the Trinity. What? Like, that, that's a fundamental basic that you have to be able to get. How come you don't think you need? And it's not that they, don't, they just don't know. They don't think they need to know. They don't see a reason to know. And that really bothers me. But this one maybe bothers me more. The de facto dominant religion is known as moralistic therapeutic deism. What is that? So here's just how this goes. Student says, you ask a student, do you believe in God? They say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they might even be the kid that's got their hand up in worship and they're singing and they're loving it and they're enjoying themselves. But they're also maybe the same kid that's out drinking on the weekends. Out having, you know, some guy's out having sex with his girlfriend on the weekends. And sees nothing wrong with it. And when you ask, are you a, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Do you understand that, you know, what Jesus wants you to do? Well, well I, I believe in Jesus. Right. But do you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Well, I, well, I, I believe in Jesus. Okay, let's try this again. Do you understand what it means? They don't get it. They don't understand what it actually means to follow Jesus. And if you say, hey, listen, when was the last time you made disciples? When was the last time you talked by faith? Oh, <laughs> don't know. Because I don't believe that I should impose my views on somebody else. I mean, this is like a moral stance for students. I have had like almost like, you know, intense conversations with students that they're like taking moral high ground on me because they refuse to impose their beliefs on somebody else. And they think this is not only okay because it fits them, but like more uh, 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 virtuous than to share one's faith. They believe in God because they think, and, it, and they think because they're a good person, that's going to benefit them. Like, okay, it's fine. Like, I believe in God. I'm a good person, as in, you know, kind of what Brian said last night. I'm not Hitler, right? That, that's good enough for me. I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly not Hitler. If I fall somewhere in between, I'm good. And that's all I care about. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So as a result, we start to see kids walking away and kids kind of, you know, not really understanding what they ought to understand. And they say stuff like this. It didn't make sense anymore. What doesn't make sense? Christianity doesn't make sense. We probably should talk about that. Some stuff is too far-fetched for me to believe. I think scientifically, and there's no real proof. And too many questions that can't be answered. This last one is the one that drives me crazy. Because I look at it as a youth leader. If a kid can't come to me and ask a question... That's a problem. Now, I know what many of you are probably thinking, right? Well, my kids, they'll come to me. If they have a question, they'll ask me. I had somebody say to me, I've been doing, you know, like I said, um, youth ed, you know, Christian education for t- more than 10 years now, and 
I've had all kinds of student leaders. I've had those students that are like, they've remained friends, you know, throughout the years. And I still talk to many of them. And I had someone said to me recently, you know, you don't connect with youth that well. I'm like, ouch, like, this is my entire career. What are you doing to me? And I got really mad. Like, I, yeah, I was like sinful mad. And I was like, you kidding me? And I had to be nice. And I, you know, like I was sort of above me, so I had to be nice about it. But at least, he's dead wrong, but at least, <laughs> of course he's wrong. But it, it caused me to at least go back and think. Like, am I doing something? Am I sort of giving off something that's making kids, maybe some kids not like me? Or not? I mean, not every kid's going to like me. I get that. But are kids actually comfortable? We, we're old. We sometimes think that it's fine, but maybe not. And we should be honest with ourselves and try to figure that out. Because they should be coming to us for questions. So what happens when you get an inarticulate, uninformed Christian teenager, add in the secular, hostile, aggressive college campus, and what do you get? It's not a good formula, right? The simple reality is you get kids that walk away. They walk away. They don't see a point. They see Christianity is totally in every way irrelevant. And they see it as this sort of intellectual skepticism and doubt. They just don't see it. They're with this over here. It's the story of a young girl. She was the star of the youth group. She was like it. She was the leader. Everybody wanted to do what she did. She was like the model. It was like the youth pastor's like, this is my youth group right here, this girl, right? She goes off to college. First semester, calls up dad. I don't think I believe anymore. Dad's like, what? And here's the reason. I had a professor that said Christianity was was bogus, and he's really smart. Really? Like, that's all it took? Was a really smart professor for one semester? And I hate to say, I think that's probably more often the reality than we realize. Right? So what happens when they start to doubt? So, so many more studies have been done, right? So, almost Christian. If a teenager's lack in articulate faith, it may be because the faith we show them is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. Well, that's insulting. Too spineless? What about already gone? This one's a bit more intense. Ken Ham and Britt Beamer do a really good job, but they're pretty intense. Youth are lost in their hearts and minds in elementary, middle, and high school. They're suggesting it's long before they even get to high school because they're starting to lose their faith. They might be right. That's pretty crazy. Probably the most um, recent and probably the most groundbreaking is uh, Dave Kinnaman's uh, You Lost Me, where basically the six reasons he gives that students leave are overproductive, shallow, anti-science, repressive, exclusive, and doubtless. Right? And then we would all look at that list and go, well, I don't think we're shallow. Not, no. Anti-science? No, we're not anti-science. We know it, right? But the question to ask ourselves is, are we communicating these things to our students? Are we showing them what they need to see? If we're overprotective, which to a certain extent we should be, but is it for a good reason? Do they see that reason? If, if they think we're shallow, Why? And what are we doing about it? And so on, right? So we've got to be able to look at these with some sort of honesty and say, well, maybe this is the case 
for my youth group. Maybe this is the case for my students. And Kara Powell and Chad Clark did a, a sticky faith uh, study about like, what, what makes faith stick in our, in our youth, right? And what they came up with is a whole lot of stuff, but they came up with the basic idea that you've got to be able to answer the questions. That, that's kind of what they, they, they sort of concluded. As students are going to ask questions, and we've got to be able to answer them. Seems pretty obvious. But their questions that they said are the most asked are, does God exist? Does God love me? Am I living the life God wants? And is Christianity true the only way to God? I would add on there, why does God allow evil? In my own experience, every time I ask the question, like, what's your biggest question about Christianity, about Jesus, about God, whatever, the problem of evil question always comes up as the top question. I think as we continue to experience the world that we experience, I think that question is going to come up more and more. If we can't answer the problem of evil, that's going to cause a problem for us later on. So here's the solution. Don't isolate. I like to say inoculate. Right? So if you get a vaccination, what does it do? It injects what into your body? The virus, right? So your body learns how to fight it. Okay? Now, putting aside all of the, the issues of whether or not you should vac- vaccinate your kids, um, my wife's got to go take our kids in today. Um, is we've got to expose our students just the right way to get them a little bit of this world over here so that they know how to deal with it, right? In a controlled fashion. We don't want to just throw them to the wolves or throw them in the fire. But if we do it in a controlled way, it's going to help them. Okay? So I'm going to give you some real quick uh, uh, ways that we can do this. Okay? Uh, and then we'll kind of sum it up and then we'll be, we'll be done. And I have, oh, perfect. I have 15 minutes. Look at that. So here's the solution. Recapture their minds. Their minds. Our world has gone to this heart thing, this highly emotional heart thing that is starting to cause an issue. Paul told Colossians to be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through empty and deceitful philosophy. I love that, right? I think that's happening over here in liberal academia, right? Deceitful philosophy. And in some cases, I'm going to talk to the, to the students later on, and some of it, I'll be honest, I think it's downright silly. Some of the things that they're being taught in terms of what truth is and how we know truth and stuff, it's like, how can you legitimately teach this? There are actually, I was reading um, yesterday, there are actually professors who will say, academically, I hold to this worldview, but I understand in reality it's impossible. Right. Because that makes sense. <laughs> Dallas Willard says it this way, Today, by contrast, we commonly depend upon the emotional pull of stories and images to move people. And we've all done it. I've done it with, uh, with countless numbers of, uh, of retreats where you like craft a moment, right? You guys want that moment. I want that like last day of the retreat moment where everybody comes to Jesus and it's awesome, right? And you think to yourself, how is this going to happen? And you make this highly emotional thing and it sometimes works. But how sticky is it, right? We fail to understand that in the very nature of the human mind, emotion does not reliably generate belief or faith, if it generates it at all, right? We forget that um, it's it's all here, right? There really is no here, because it's all here, literally, right? Our mind, our intellect, needs to inform our emotions. Think about worship, 
Anybody worship leaders? Okay. So, correct me if I'm wrong. I've been, I've, told, I've been told this, so I could be totally wrong. Is that in some worship songs, in many worship songs, the bridge is supposed to capture an emotion and change and do something crazy. I don't know how, how to word it, but it's supposed to do something, right? So, and, and it works, because I'm like, oh yeah, it totally does that. Like, that's really cool. So, songs are written musically to, do, to, to, to change emotions, right? But what happens when we actually know the words? And we actually, like, get the words. And the one that I was thinking of is um, when, when, da- when David Carter redid um, How He Loves, right? The way in which he does that song, but when you, is, is really highly emotional and, like, really compelling and, like, makes you cry. And if you don't cry, you're like, I'm going to cry in this song because I just can't, I can't sing the song without crying, right? But that emotion is driven by the fact that I know in my mind, in my intellect, the, the depth to which he loves, Right? So it's my uh, intellect that's informing my emotion and then therefore taking my emotion to a much greater level, which is essentially what Dallas Willard is trying to get at. Okay? Real quick story. This is a, 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 a college student. I was in several youth groups in high school and unfortunately found that youth group was too soft. We played a lot of games and had a lot of fun retreats, but rarely learned about the fundamentals of faith, why we believe what we believe and what it is that we do believe. Now that I'm in college, my faith is under constant scrutiny and always being tested by scientific concepts and the secular slant of most universities. I had wished I'd been equipped with a more solid justification for my faith, knowing how to answer the tough questions, how to respond to arguments, and how to stand firm in what feels like a storm against my spirituality. This is just a small, small sample of, I think, is the the, the large reality amongst college students. They have every intention of joining crew. They have every intention of going to church. But let's face it, Saturday night happens. And you're tired. And Sunday morning comes and it's like, oh, I don't feel like going. And I know. I spent my entire college career so far deep into sin that I almost didn't make it out. So what do we got to do? Well, Paul says it pretty well. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts with our heads. And moves from there. Then you got someone like my 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 friend and friend and friend and mend and mentor, who always says things so just not politically correct. Anti-intellectualism has spawned an irrelevant gospel. Today we share the gospel primarily as addressing felt needs. I think there's some truth in what he says. You know, it's JP's way of saying things, but I think there's truth in that. And if you haven't read that book, How to Love the Lord with All Your Mind, you should. All right, so I'm going to give you four things, real quick, four things that I think will help stem the tide. Number one is apologetics. You've got to teach your students to argue well. You have to teach them to argue well. And I don't mean argue. Every, every, there's those students that you, they, they love to argue. That's not what I mean. Okay? I mean be able to argue in an academic square. Right? This is what Paul did. Paul was so good at going into the public square and engaging people on an intellectual level. We should be able to do the same thing. Maybe not quite as well as he does, but we should try. And the, the quintessential apologetics verse, right? It's 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared. That's the whole apologia thing, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason uh, for the hope that you have. Okay, so we've got to be able to defend 
Second thing is we've got to be able to develop a Christian worldview. Oh my gosh, this is so important. Our students do not have a Christian worldview. They don't know how to respond to Orlando with a Christian worldview. They don't know how to respond in the political landscape that we currently exist in with a Christian worldview. They don't know how to respond to homosexual marriage. They don't know how to respond to the LGBT community. They don't know how to respond to so many things from the eyes of Jesus because they don't want to put their beliefs on anybody else. I've told students before, I say this, like the very first day I teach apologetics, if the Christian worldview is true, that means every other worldview is false. And they look at me with horror. Like, how could you say that? Like, it just is. I'm not saying it because I'm, you know, some bigoted jerk. I'm saying it because that's true. Okay? I love what T.S. Eliot says. I, you know, he says it in terms of Christian education, but I think it works because anytime you're standing in front of teaching people and you're a Christian, you're giving Christian education. Primarily teach people to be able to think in Christian categories. I love that. And, and, and Christian educators are, 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 are we're trained to do this constantly, and you know, it depends on who you are, it depends on how well you do it. But it's teaching every subject from a Christian worldview, from a Christian bent, which makes sense. But it's teaching our kids, in this sense, it's teaching our kids to be able to think of all of life, everything. We have this sort of dualistic mentality right now. Where we have our private sphere up here, and we have our public sphere down here, and we put all of our religion, all of our morality, all of our stuff up here, and we don't do anything else with it because it's ours, and we don't want to impose it on anybody else, and that's where we stick it, and we, that never informs our public stuff, right? It's a personal faith. It's not private, And that makes a huge difference. And our students are being taught otherwise somewhere. But worldviews define our origin. It defines our morality. It defines our meaning. And it defines our destiny. All of those things inform how we see everything else. And if it doesn't, we have a problem. Right? So can our students think that way? And I think, uh, as usual, C.S. Lewis says it best. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think that sums it up pretty well. Third, theology. Theology, theology, theology. Our students have to have good theology. Everybody's a theologian. It's whether you're a good one or you're a bad one. Right? Because if theology is just thinking and talking about God, then... What are, we, what are we thinking and talking about God, okay? So to know God is to have good theology, okay? If, if I didn't really know my wife, I would not be a very good husband, okay? So here's the thing. Our kids, if, if you ask them, will say, if you said God is, what do they say? Yeah, love. That's great. John said so. I've got it. See, I got good theology. I know my Bible. I'm good. God is love. What else is God? We have this view that God is love. Now, what happens is, is if God is just love, and our students don't really understand what love is, they're students. They don't really quite get the love in its fullest capacity sometimes, especially if they come from a broken home or, you know, whatever. who knows, right? Now, love becomes tolerance and acceptance on every level. So I think love is one thing. Therefore, what I think love is, therefore, that's what God is. And we forget that God is the rest of these things. 
And all of this is love. God has to be just to be loving, right? Spurgeon said it really well. I'm just going to read the last part of it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man as devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Love it. Got to get our students engaged in the classic theology, theological studies, those kinds of things. Go deep. It's okay. You go here. They'll come up. It might take them a while, but they'll get there. Okay? They'll, they'll, they'll get there. So how do you do it? How, how do you get to the, the, the fourth thing is you got to be able to provide experiences. Right? You can't just get them in a room and talk at them. That never works with students. Talk at them. Get them involved, get them engaged, and get them out. Get them those experiences. How do you get those experiences? There's a lot of ways, okay? Um, there's a whole bunch of organizations that you can get involved with. You've got Summit Ministries. You've got Rocio Christie College Prep. Biola's working on stuff. We're actually creating right now a youth apologetics curriculum with Biola, which is going to be really cool when it's done, hopefully by the fall, if I can get writing quicker. Um, <laughs> If you can get your students to rethink, I'll mention this again in a minute, but rethink conference with, with Stand to Reason. Giddy up, you've got to go to that. Uh, and if I can be any, any help, I, I shamelessly put the, my, my logo the largest, is, <laughs> okay, couldn't resist, um, is uh, I run an organization called Defend Truth, and basically my, my whole mission is, is to provide you with your, the resources that you need, and whatever, however that looks, okay? So what can you do? You can teach method, and you can keep, teach content, right? You've got to teach the idea of apologetics and theology, but you've also got to get to methodology. And it's another thing that we're going to talk about with your students later on, is how do I actually discuss my faith in a way that makes me not come off like a total jerk, right? That's, that's kind of important. Must-reads. This is my list of must-reads. Everyone has their list. This is my list. Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I had 10th graders read this one time, and I had pastors calling me telling me I was crazy. They were like mad at me. Like, how could you? I'm like, I made them do it. That's how I, that's how I could. That's the beautiful part about being a teacher. It's a grade. And then N.T. Wright's After You Believe. Anybody read that? If you haven't read it, read it. N.T. Wright is phenomenal. And if you haven't read his stuff, get ready. It's a little bit weird sometimes because he's English and he writes funny sometimes. But it is incredible. The whole premise is once you've made that profession of faith, now what? Uh, and it's, it's awesome. Okay. Uh, it changed how I see things way back in the day. Inoculation means calculated exposure aimed at teaching, right? Calculated exposure. You got to get your students on the field and in the game. And if you don't give them practice, they can't get in the game. I used to, te- I used to coach football. And, you know, some of the uh, 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 best practices that we ever had when we would do game time uh, uh, experiences, right? We would actually do things that would be simulating game time experiences. So if we knew it was going to rain Friday night, I would take the football and I'd dunk it in water. And I'd just make it super wet. I'd soak the field with the hose. Because in Michigan, you could do that. You could waste water. Um, <laughs> we didn't care. Um, you got to get into their world a little bit. You got to know what they're, what's going on with them. You got to get them ready. 
What can you do real practically? Um, through Stand to Reason, you can do uh, the Berkeley and Utah trips. If you, if you don't know much about those, go to their website, str.org, and you'll, you'll see them there. Um, they do some local excursions. You can host a youth conference with Biola. They do their um, uh, Biola on the road, and they'll actually do a youth thing uh, if you want them to. Um, you can have apologists come to you. I'd be happy to come to you and, and do something for you. It'd be great. Um, invite local Christian scientists. I've had student groups do this. It's awesome. The kids eat it up. Um, you can host a debate. Um, those are always fun. Um, and allow students the opportunity to ask the tough questions, right? Allow them to ask some tough questions. But of course, if you can get your students to rethink, get them to rethink. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And I'll put the dates up in just a second. Get them in the hot seat. I do this thing called the hot seat. And essentially, it is a sort of role-playing thing where I get them some exposure to what they're actually going to do. And sometimes I get really militant and have some fun with it because I want them to see. And I'll get students almost mad at me um, because I want them to see it and I want them to learn. Don't get mad. Okay, you got to learn how to temper yourself and, how, and what you're going to see, right? Real quick, and then I'm going to be done. Here is the strategy very fast. Elevate. Get your expectations high. Get them high. Move them up here. Your students can get, can get there, okay? Go beyond just feeling and get them to learn to think. Equip them. Give them the tools that they need, okay? And engage them. Get them to practice. And finally, embody it. You have to embody the truth. You've got to be a model for, for these things. So you should be reading these things. You should be getting involved with it and, and learn alongside with them if you're, if, if, if you're not... Um, on the up and up, so to speak. And honestly, be real, be honest with them. If you don't know, it's okay. You know, it's all good. You can find out and you will.